You are listening to the Cancer from A to Z podcast with Dr. Rosalind Morell, episode 22, Prostate Cancer from a Survivor's Perspective with J.W. Cheatham. Hi, and welcome to the Cancer from A to Z podcast, where we discuss the issues and topics related to a diagnosis of cancer. I'm your host, Dr. Rosalind Morell. These podcast episodes are intended for informational and educational purposes only and are not a substitute for medical treatment by a healthcare professional. They do not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. Please consult your doctor or other health professional with any questions you have regarding any medical conditions. Welcome to September and a big thank you for downloading today's episode during Prostate Cancer Awareness Month. I love September because I feel like it is such a special time of year. Now, I may be a little biased since it does also happen to be my birthday month. Shout out to all the Virgos out there. But it also feels like it's the beginning of the year. And maybe that's because a lot of people are beginning the school year and it's the beginning of fall. I don't know. But like I said, it's Prostate Cancer Awareness Month. And so in honor of that, I thought I would do an episode with a prostate cancer survivor. And as you may know, if you've listened to several episodes of this podcast, I have interviewed other cancer survivors. And that was on episodes 10 and episode 17. So if you haven't heard those episodes, please check those out. But on today's show, I am speaking with J.W. Cheatham, who happens to be a really good friend of mine. And the reason why I feel it's important to have these types of interviews is because I think hearing about someone's cancer journey really conveys a different aspect or viewpoint from that of someone such as myself. And I think this is definitely the case in today's interview with JW. So let me tell you a little bit about him. He is a project compliance and management consultant who has spent the last 25 years in space satellite technology field. And I was absolutely delighted when he agreed to come on the show. During our conversation, he made some really important points. And he talks about his cancer treatment decision making process in a way that I had never really thought about before, but is probably relevant to many people. So take a listen. JW, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so happy that you agreed to come on the podcast. How are you? I'm very well today. Thank you. Good, good. Well, I wanted to start off with maybe you just telling the listeners a little bit about yourself and we'll talk about your journey with prostate cancer. September is Prostate Cancer Awareness Month, and I wanted to do an episode with someone who's been diagnosed with prostate cancer and just hear about your journey. So let's start there. Sure. I work um, in space technology with satellites, so I do project management for large-scale security and compliance projects. So I've been in that business for about 25 years, but more to the point, um, 
I don't know if I'm going to cover it now, but uh, the reason why I discovered cancer was because I'm of retirement age. So I was trying to prep myself for retirement. And so last May, I said, you know, I'm just going to, you know, I have PPO, have great insurance. I thought, you know what? I'm going to check everything out because, you know, you usually check out your financials, you check out your real estate, you check out, you know, all the government funding and your 401k and your pensions and all that. So those things are pretty steady on. You can actually figure it out. The one thing that I couldn't figure out was the medical. And then when I started looking into it, it started talking about the consequences of not figuring out the medical appropriately. Because that's the one thing that gets uh, most people's finances devastated in an unexpected way is not preparing for health. So that was my impetus last May in starting this journey. And I thought I was in great shape, by the way. I thought I was like pretty active. Well, you know me. I was pretty active. I was pretty boisterous, pretty active. And I'd never been really sick uh, in years. I mean, I barely even caught a cold. So I thought it was all going to be all good in the neighborhood, but let's just make sure. And uh, I happened to go to one specialist, a urologist, and he looked at me and he said everything was good. And then he came back after the uh, PSA test. And I'm thinking... I didn't even know what PSA was. I thought it was always meant to me public service announcement, but that's not what he was talking about. <laughs> he talked <laughs> about the other PSA, the prostate, what is it? Prostate specific, specific antigen testing. Mm-hmm. Oh boy, that was a whole nother turn right there. So I don't remember what the numbers are. I think I told you once, I don't recall. I think it was like a seven when it came back or something like that. And so that caused uh, me to get a biopsy. And I still thought I was fine. I was feeling fine. There was nothing wrong. And then um, after the biopsy, it got a little bit more serious. So that next test with the two scores, what is that called? After the biopsy, so the Gleason score. That's the one. That's the devil in the details. Anyway, so (laughs) I ended up getting that test and then found out I had prostate cancer. So prior to you preparing for retirement, had you been regularly going to the doctor? I have been regularly going to the doctor. Now, I didn't have a primary care physician because I would just go to the expert because my insurance allowed me to do that. So maybe I missed something along the way by you know just going directly to a specialist in their field. But I had been going to the doctor regularly because, as another as a side note, so I had gout for many, many years. So I was always going to the doctor, and they were always taking blood tests. So maybe they weren't looking for those particulars in regard to prostate cancer. I see. So you're not sure if that PSA had been previously checked. Exactly, yes. Okay. And when it was checked and it came back at seven, what did they say specifically? Well, they said they, that it looked a little bit abnormal and they wanted to make sure of what they were seeing. They went over a lot of things. I, I was kind of a little bit in shock because like, I thought I was healthy and you know, I didn't feel anything. So that's, you know, we're always looking for pain as an indicator that you have a problem of some sort. And that was not really the case. I mean, there were probably subtle things that I missed, but it wasn't like I, I thought about something wrong with me every day or anything like that. Once he said that, he said he needed to do the biopsy. And then that's when the Gleason score came through. And I think it was the first time it was like three. Three plus three. Three plus three. And then it was three plus four. And you had another spot that was three plus four. Yeah. Simple math, but I couldn't add it up. But uh, 
<laughs> what the heck That's is right. We're going back to arithmetic. Right. Yes. Addition. It's just addition. It didn't mean what I thought it would mean because those are little numbers, you know, <laughs> single digits. Come on now. I, I'll, give me 11 right. now. I know something wrong. <laughs> so, anyway. <All> right. <laughs> so. right. So, I guess I'm curious to know. Had anybody explained in the past, any healthcare provider, about the prostate gland and the need to have it checked periodically with a blood test and with a digital rectal exam? Did they talk about prostate cancer screening? Because you're how old right now? 70. Okay. So back when you were, I know you said you weren't going to the doctor a lot, but did, did any healthcare provider, when you did go... After you turned 45 or even 50, let's say 50, did anybody explain to you, well, you know, you're of this certain age and we need to be checking for prostate cancer or just checking on your prostate gland with a blood test and or rectal examination? Did anybody say that? No, but they were pressing the colonoscopy issue, so <laughs> I did take care of that. <laughs> so right. it's one of those, hey, you need to get this. And, you, you know, I didn't have any colon cancer running in my family or anything like that. So it kind of all was an undercurrent of things, but it was already discovered by then, by the time I really started looking at it. Right, right. Okay, and so you had the biopsy, and they told you what the Gleason score was, did they go into detail about the Gleason score and what it meant? And Absolutely. He took out the whiteboard. He's showing me all of this stuff about the Gleason score. And all I could think of was I could have cancer. But I was listening for the most part. And he, he explained all the Gleason scores, how it worked. Do I remember it all now? No. But he did ex- take the time and explain end to end what it meant and how it was calculated and then how the variables work and then how they work with the prostate and what stages and how they come up with those conclusions with the combination of, I guess, the PSA, the Gleason scores and the biopsy, everything added together. I think that it came up to that I was like a stage two or something like that borderlining stage three, which um, it was still located in the prostate. So that's basically what I heard. It hadn't gotten into any other organs or gone past the prostate since it's a slow growth, also probably it's a slow growth cancer, but I knew that before. What was going through your mind as the healthcare provider was telling you all of this? When I got the news, basically you kind of tune out for a minute because now you have to realize that you actually have cancer. And that's quite a bit of a, it's a little little bit of a shock because you think you're healthy and then someone tells you you have cancer and and usually you watch the news, everything else. And it's kind of a devastating thing that you would have cancer, even though it was contained and hadn't gone to other organs. I understood that. I understood who he was saying, but there's a pause point that you get to when someone says you have cancer. It makes you stop because you hear about people dying from it so often. You are so many different stories and the news really pumps it up and telethons. It just, it, all these things went through my mind. You know, I just wanted to basically get rid of it. and. The way I am, I don't like to talk about, I'm kind of a private person. I don't like to talk about my medical conditions with anybody. So I kind of kept it all to myself and just said, you know, I'm going to deal with it and I don't need any extra sympathy. And so I'm just going to make it through this and I'm going to come out of the other side and everything's going to be good. That's, that's just how I roll. As time went on, you start to change a little bit. Yeah. And I think a lot of people probably at first don't want to talk to their family about it. and for various reasons, because 
you know, once you do, then in terms of their thoughts about cancer and, and what they think about it kind of comes into play. And then you start hearing a lot of different maybe stories and opinions and things in terms of what you should be doing about your diagnosis. And that's really tough because actually I didn't want, you know, I didn't want my daughter to worry, you know, each, you know, you know, my family. And I was in the middle of a bunch of other stuff at the same time. I'll just tell you, so now I'm just being open. So, so I was going, well, as you very know, I was going through a divorce at the same time and I just didn't want all this to cloud the issue. I just wanted to be myself and be treated normally. I mean, I didn't even talk to you about it and I knew what you did for a living and I didn't even talk to you. I, I barely talked to our friend, the good Dr. James. So I was like, I go inside first. I'm saying, let me see if I can sort this out within myself. As I sit here today, I think that's not a good idea for most people. I think it's better to talk to people every chance you get. I do all my research on the side. I was looking things up. I read this big, like two and a half page pamphlet thing that he gave me all about cancer. I mean, I burned through that just so I could understand more and more and more. And uh, after I read through all that, see, you know, we, then we went through all the options. That really brings it home when you say, okay, so what kind of treatment are you going to get for the cancer? And then that really starts to face you head on. You go, oh, I'm going to have to actually do something about this. This this is not just reading anymore. So I got to that point. I thought, okay, it's really real when you have to make decisions about how you're going to treat. Sometimes you hear things and you can go through this whole iteration of, oh, it's not that bad or it's devastating. You, You can do all these things. But when you have to make a decision, it makes you stand up straight and say, okay, now I've got to really do something, make some choices. Did you feel... So you said that basically looking back on it, you don't think that was necessarily the best to kind of keep it to yourself. Would you say that maybe talking to other individuals would have been helpful in terms of deciding on what type of treatment? Well, the only thing that makes me look back to talk about things is I could have been telling other people, and I wasn't for far enough long, I might add. I mean, I could just only tell them I, I was having prostate cancer and, you know, I didn't know you know, and I had a surgery day coming up. I knew all that stuff. I think the part that really made me realize I should talk to other people is after I had it, one of our friends that you and I both know got, had prostate cancer as well. And he was going a homeopathic way. And, you know, sometimes talking to people, you bring these things forward and tell them that, hey, maybe you want to still go to the medical treatment and not just homeopathic. But I talk and sometimes I can be a little convincing so I can actually influence somebody's thoughts. So I thought I didn't even make a try at it because I was like keeping it all to myself. And as I started to kind of let go of me trying to restore my own health by myself, then I started to realize more thing that, that, that I was be more impactful to other people that had it. And as I started talking about it, I started to find out more and more people were interested well, I kind of influenced them to get interested because the whole retirement com- community, which is a very large part of where I work, everybody's at an older generation, like mostly 50 and ups, sort of. So there's a vast majority of population in that range. That's when I started opening up about it. I thought I was actually being helpful. I thought it had some value to it. So that's really encouraged me to talk about even more. So that was a turn that that was a kind of a turn the corner after I'd already had surgery and I was still going through early stages of treatment. 
as I started to talk about it, that's when it, I, I realized, hey, I'm doing a, sort of an injustice by not talking to people. Mm, interesting that you say that. With the surgery, so I want to I want to kind of talk about what you just mentioned about the surgery. With there being several options available to you, did you seek out the opinion not just of a surgeon, but a radiation oncologist? Did you see any other specialists? I did. And believe it or not, the doctor first mentioned you as the top radio <laughs> oncologist that I should talk. I told you that afterwards, but it's really true. I was sitting in the office and he goes, yeah, you should see a, an oncologist. And so you should see Roz Morell. I went, I know her. He said, no, you don't. I said, yes, I do. I know her. <laughs> He's like, how do you know her? I said, we have dinner together. Right. Our kids hang out together a little bit. Right. And he was like shocked at the people that I knew. That's a small world. That's a small world. Yeah. And he pays you the ultimate couch. He's the best. And I thought, I know the best? Come on now. But I didn't even tell you at that point that I could have come right. and spoken to you about it. And I went to see this other guy, you know, it, it, I, can't, I can't even remember his name. I was only in there briefly. I, I was just, like I said, I was just going through things. So I talked to some of the people that recommended radiology. But as one of the options, because now you're choosing, you know, what are you going to do as far as an activity to actually bring this under control? And after I read about all the options, I thought, you know what? I'm just going to get it all taken out. Now, that's a big decision, and it sounds pretty easy if you have a tooth that you're going to remove. But the ramifications, even though it's in there, the ramifications about recovering afterwards, it's bigger than what you actually think. And it's, okay, let me put it this way. It's bigger than what I actually think. And some of the people I spoke to now are saying, yes, this is a big deal. Especially, you know, it's prostate and it's kind of like your male macho. It's a big part of your life, right? right. It's not exactly. small. <laughs> so It's not. So it wasn't so much the leading up. It was afterwards. And so I did get to talk to some, going back to what your question was. So I did talk to a couple of people. And it's still, with what I read, because they give you, well, I got all the paperwork on it as well, how each one and how the efficacy of each one, you know, how effective each one was. And I thought I chose the option. Well, you know, I'll chose the one where everything is gone all at once. Now, I'm not sure if I would have choose that again this time, but I'm, I'm thinking I really? would have. I have to say that after going through it now. Were you overwhelmed with all of the information or the all of the options? I didn't think I was overwhelmed because... I kind of read with some great understanding and try and understand what I'm getting into. Obviously, I'm not a doctor. I can't really determine myself, but I was pretty comfortable about where I was with my decision at that time. I didn't feel confused. It can be confusing. Trust me. I mean, all the options and the steps in between can be very confusing, but I didn't feel like I was confused. I didn't feel that way. I, I know other people that I've spoken to after said they were, oh, I didn't know which one to pick. And I, some of them picked different therapies. Was it ever a feeling of, with your decision to pick surgery, did you have that feeling of, let me just get this organ that has the cancer in it, let me just get it out of my body? That was my bottom line, what I concluded to say, you know, listen, I, the radiation may come back and there's varying degrees. There was different options even in that alone, I guess. So I thought, you know, if I get rid of it, maybe it's gone and I won't have to think about it reoccurring in any way, shape, or form. So it's kind of like the final countdown. I just get rid of it all. That's how I concluded. I thought, I, I, I don't want to deal with this ever again. But I think I probably should have put 
more thought. I probably should have talked to you. Let me just be honest here. If I had spoken to you, you probably could have put me in a different frame of mind. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> let's admit it. <laughs> let's let's just be honest. Just be, but, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just mentioned something, and I'm and I'm actually very curious now. Did the healthcare provider talk about the possibility of recurrence after surgery? Yes, they did, and they talked about it in terms of which one would have the most likelihood of it reoccurring. Now, I'm not saying I got it all right, but the reoccurrence level, um, I, I can't remember the, the one radiologist said it, it's down low and they just check every year just to see if it's growing or not growing. We check a PSA usually every three months uh, to make sure your PSA is essentially coming down immediately after treatment and staying nice and low. And then the further out you are from treatment, then we can check a PSA like every six months and then once a year. And then, you know, obviously we're also doing digital rectal examinations. So I had the impression that the least amount of reevaluating would be with the ectomy, you know, the post prostatectomy. So I thought, okay, me, I'm, I'm trying to avoid going to the doctor as much as possible. Not that I need to do that, but I thought, okay, if I'm retired, this is all retirement mind sake. If I'm retired, I didn't have my supplementals together and I hadn't worked out all the medical plans for retirement. But I thought, okay, if I don't have to go back as often, that means I'm not paying to go to a specialist and do that again. So if I have the ectomy, it's less likely that I will have a, a reoccurrence. And so therefore my medical costs will stay where it needs to be. That's, mm. that's a fact. That's how, that's how you were thinking about it. That's how I was thinking about it. Wow. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm, and I'm sure a lot of people think that way too, especially if you're going into retirement and you're thinking about whatever the cost of different things. Absolutely. But you mentioned though, if you had maybe a chance to do it all over again, maybe you would have thought about doing something different. Yeah. I mean, I would have given it more thought is what I'm saying, you know, because sometimes you understand your options and yeah, you want to get rid of that thing, just get it out of your body all completely. But there are variations and different effects to each one of those therapies that you get, whatever it is, or treatments that you get, right? So I just went radical just because in my mind, it simplified how I had to look at that going forward. I think if I had spoken to you, I probably would have gotten an even more rounded view, if you will, and not base my opinion on my own reading because what do I know, right? I'm just reading this stuff and taking it for granted or not for granted, but just taking it as it's coming to me. And by the way, I didn't even talk to the surgeon, but I read about him. And he was one of the top guys in the country. I'm thinking, okay, that's a good sign, right? And I spoke to him, and then I had a consultation with him, and it, he was probably taught everybody at UCLA. So I was like, okay, cool. And uh, he and he himself had time to available, not one of the people that he had trained or had worked with for a while. So I said, this is a, the top guy in the field. So I'm thinking, okay. So I was also convinced by that about my decision that I was already making if you know what I mean. So we coupled with the fact that I was said, I need to get it out of my body. Here, I got the top guy to take it out of my body. And he's one of the best guys at robotic surgery as well. So I'm thinking, you know, my decision set. This all sounds good. This is the way to go. This is the way to go. And so what has recovery been like for you? Has it been hard? Has it been easy? The things that you're going through, did you expect to be going through these things? Or tell us a little bit about that. Well, I had a difficult surgery as this 
expert told me, Dr. Ryder, he said that there was more tumors around than he expected and that I had a, you know, my hips were narrow, so it was hard for him to get the robotics in there. So it took longer. My recovery time was longer than most people's. I talked to one guy and he was like in and out hospital one day, he was out the next. I was in hospital for three days. And I couldn't move. That was one of the most helpless feelings I've ever had in my life. I'm used to actually having a lot of freedom of movement. I couldn't even inch up in the bed uh, after surgery. It was I mean, without I, I nearly fainted. So it's it's like I said, you, you don't these things you don't know about, and just feeling like somebody had to move me. I couldn't I couldn't even move two inches by myself after surgery. Surgery went well. I wasn't in any great amount of pain until I tried to move. Oh, my God. It was devastatingly tough. But like I said, I had one of the tougher surgeries, according to the doctor, that he had ever experienced himself. So didn't make me feel any better. But the point is, I was. it was like, okay, whatever. I'm in pain. So. Right. And I thought, they said, normally you're out, like, you know, you have the surgery one day. The next day, you know, you go home by the, the afternoon. And I was in there for three days. So. I thought I'm a special case. See, I'm a special guy. <laughs> you are a special guy. <laughs> There's there no doubt about it. You are a special guy. <laughs> um, but now it's it's been a while since the surgery and, and things are going things are going well, right? Finally, I can tell you, and for all you listeners, all the people that hear this, I can tell you there's two devastating pieces of that, and you probably know what they are. But number one you have erectile dysfunction. And number two, you have incontinence, which they're both socially, it makes you feel kind of small. You know, you feel like a child again because you can't control your urine for the most part. And so you're wearing basically a diaper. Now those things are, so that was in my silent stage. I was like, man, I don't want to tell anybody what I have to do to get through this, right? And it was tough. It was tough. How do you tell your friends, hey, I need... I have a diaper on and I can't, you know, it was, it was bad. It was bad. I, and I, and, and in my mind, I only made it that much worse because I wanted to be normal. I mean, back to where I was pre-surgery, right? So that was one of the most devastating things in my own mind. I don't know, nobody else could tell this was going on, but in my mind, it was a heavy, 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 heavy weight. And it's just until recently moving ahead, just until recently, you know, I'm, kind of at the dribble stage as far as the incontinence go still haven't fully recovered and it's pretty definitely still haven't recovered in the ed area it's a lot of things that you have to go through and there's a whole at least you see i had this whole therapy session that you go through after surgery to talk to their what they call their men's clinic i think they're changing the name of it because how they have to identify people going forward but they have their whole men's clinic to specifically deal with people that I think there's other things in there, but especially after prostate surgery, you have to see these guys all the time and they have all these different modalities that you need to use. I don't know if you want me to go into them all, but they're all kind of like not comfortable. <laughs> I mean, you're leaving surgery right. with the, uh, I forgot to give me, I forgot what they call it, but the bag that you have to have the, um, the Foley bag. Yes. You have to have that for a few days. See, these are the things that you don't think about. You know, you have to change that bag. <laughs> Right. You have to take it out and all this stuff. <laughs> right. So before your surgery, though, was this talked about extensively? 
in terms of what, you know, the incontinence, the, the length of time that you might be having to wear a diaper, the erectile dysfunction. Do you feel like before the surgery, you were well prepared for what was going to come after in terms of the side effects? I think they, it was more simplified than it was. I think, I think they talked about it and they explained what was going to happen. They explained that several times now along the way. The doctor explained it. The therapist explained it. You go to the, they, they're all talking about it. But some of the detail to round it out isn't there. I mean, yeah, they told me when I, they thought I would recover from this, but everybody's a little bit different. And I had more of a difficult surgery. And they, I mean, the doctor said from the start and even afterwards, I should have full recovery in all areas. And they thought I was going to recover faster than I actually did. It's really kind of interesting, but how can they know? You know, your body heals in a certain way. They take how you are prior to surgery, you know, what's your function like at that level. And then, you know, whether, you know, you have to urinate every three hours or two hours, they're monitoring all these things pre-surgery so then they can compare afterwards. And so I was pretty much normal across all those different things. So the way they described things to me was not what actually happened on the other side. It was more intense than I thought it was going to be, far greater. Like I said, I don't get sick that often. So I thought I was going to recover like, you know, maybe six months, three months, you know, something in there like that. Not like that at all. So, <laughs> I mean, they said it could last longer. They said it could be a year. They, said, they did say that it could be up to a year. But when you're in it, you're thinking, the sh- I, I was thinking the shortest period of time possible because I'm healthy enough and I'm going to recover because there was nothing wrong with me anyway in the first minute. And then they come up with this stuff. No, it's, it doesn't work that way. I mean, your body has its own time to heal and all i was doing stressing out making it worse probably (laughs) because of my own thoughts you have to get past your own thoughts that's that's what i really learned about it you you really need to pay attention and give yourself time and relax to do these things so i do think they spent time to go back to your question in my head i had my own timelines and it was always a shorter one than the the longer one that could possibly be because i'm still within the same range I'm, i'm about to come up on a year December 2nd will be the day I had my surgery. So I'm coming up on that. So I'm still not fully functional, but certain things are dropping off quite rapidly now. It seems like I'm picking up a little momentum, but I'm trying to relax. So I'm not going to count it too heavily. I'm sure that before your surgery and when you met with the radiation oncologist, they probably talked to you about the differences between the two in terms of incontinence and erectile dysfunction. Did that occur? Did you have like, did you have a good understanding in terms of, okay, if I have the surgery, this is my chance of incontinence and erectile dysfunction versus like radiation therapy? Did they talk about that? Yeah, we did talk about that. And I thought I understood what they were saying. And like I said, based on pre-surgery, think, okay, you should recover. I mean, you're not having erectile dysfunction before. You seem pretty much on it. You know, all these things were happening. So the promise for me was that, well, not a promise, but what they described as, you know, you should be, you should be fully functional if they can connect everything, you know, they can connect all the dots after surgery, right? right? right. And he said he felt he had done pretty good in that area. So again, my expectation, was, even they, they, they said, but it could be a little bit longer, but it could be as short as, and you describing things before, they say, oh, this should be pretty good. Your chances of recovering to be fully functional is quite high. So, right. 
Well, the reason why I ask that question is because when I have people sitting in front of me who have recently been diagnosed with prostate cancer and maybe they've seen the surgeon and now they're seeing me, that's a big thing that we talk about in terms of the differences because it's like, okay, which one should I do? And so we're weighing the pros and cons of each treatment. And that is the big one because a lot of times they, of course, the urologist has has been involved because they were doing the biopsy. So they've already talked to the individual about surgery and, and incontinence and erectile dysfunction. And then they come to see me and that's a big question. Well, what's the chance that I'm going to be incontinent with radiation? What's the chance that I'm going to have erectile dysfunction with the radiation? That's the reason why I ask because that's a big talking point. And it's certainly, you know, I what I try to do and I'm I'm the type of doctor where I don't want to irradiate everybody. <laughs> I just, you know, that's that's not my goal. I'm here to cure people, but I if I feel like surgery is the better option for you be, based on, you know, the different factors, then I'll tell you that. You know, or if I feel that radiation is the better way to go, then I tell patients that. And I think it's really important as healthcare providers that we are very honest about what are the potential side effects? What are the potential toxicities associated with our treatment? And again, because just like with you, these things are being factored into the decision making. And if we downplay it, sugarcoat it, not mention a particular toxicity or side effect, and then that happens to show up, then individuals are are quite upset and, and quite angry. And it's always better to have an open and honest discussion about things like that. Because like you said, this is definitely life altering. I mean, to not have control of your bladder and having to wear a diaper and feeling like you're a child again, in a sense, it's a very big thing. And sometimes I feel as though Prostate cancer, because we do communicate a lot of times to individuals that this is a slow-growing cancer, but that's not always true, and that it's such a small organ and you don't need it to live and survive, we kind of make it seem as though this is easy to treat. And it's not easy to treat, even when the surgery is done robotically. Yes, they're not you know, making a huge incision and cutting you open like they used to do. They're doing it all robotically. But I still tell patients, it's still a major surgery. You're having an organ removed. They're having to, you know, take out the seminal vesicles. They're having to take out a few lymph nodes. They're having to stitch you back together. It's a major surgery. And radiation is major too. We're doing something to your body, to the tissue. That tissue will never be the same ever again. That's the reason why I, I asked that question, because I'm always curious to hear from individuals such as yourself what your experience has been. Of course, I know what I say to my patients, but I'm curious to hear what other radiation oncologists or other surgeons say to individuals about prostate cancer and, and what the process involves. So I wanted to know about that. You're coming up on a year. How are you feeling now? I know you said that, you know, you're, it's become important for you to kind of talk about this now with, with other individuals. What has that been like for you in terms of talking to other individuals? Do you talk to them about 
hey, you need to go get your PSA checked? <laughs> Do you talk to them? Maybe they've come up to you and told you, you know, they've just been diagnosed. Do you talk to them about the surgery? What do you talk about? I start where I started, actually. And I think that's the most important piece is whether you're thinking about retirement or not, some of the older, I said, just go and have yourself thoroughly checked out. Go to your urologist, go to your heart guy, go to whoever, go to your primary physician, tell them you want a full-on health check. I start there. I think that's the most important piece to all of this to get that early head start on if there's something wrong. Now you have a chance to even have a chance to do something about it. In its early stage, and you don't have to go through any surgeries. Maybe they can do something else, whatever that might be. But the first thing is knowing. You've got to know. It's better to know than not to know. Don't don't hide, bury your head in the sand. You got to know. And if they refer you to something, somebody else, great. If you can go there yourself, do that. But I think that you have to you have your primary care and go and get checked out. One of the guys I was just I, – I, I see a lot of guys in passing by. I said – he says, yeah, I'm going on vacation. Said, so you're going on vacation. I know you're going to retire next year. I said, have you gotten your health checked yet? He goes, yeah, I'm going to do that. I said, yeah, you talked about your family. I know about your daughter. I know about your wife. I said, what about you? I said, the guys don't tend to go to the doctor enough. And I talked to him for, it was only like, it was almost in passing, about five minutes. I said, I need you to go to the doctor first. First thing, set up your appointment immediately. Do not mess around. Start getting it done. I said, that's how I discovered things that I never would have discovered. But I, I did it for retirement. But there's a whole bunch of financial reasons that I thought I just wanted to understand where I am. And I thought I was okay. You know, and this guy had a little bit of back pain, a little bit of stomach. You know, just get it all checked. Do not miss anything, especially get your the PSA done. So go see your urologist. Get that done. You will be happier in the end knowing that your health won't devastate you. I always start there because, like I said, people understand that catastrophic thing when it comes to financially. And you can lose all of your retirement just doing medical treatment. And that's no way to live. Anyway. Health is always number one is what I, I tell I tell everybody. So everybody I've spoken to directly about doing the first step, very receptive. I get, you know, they type me an email, hey, I went to see my doctor. Yeah, the appointment's set up. I think, okay, cool. You know, I'm just, I'm not going to check up on you, but they feel like, okay, <laughs> you, you got me started. I'm going to tell you what's going on. Uh, so that was a couple of people like that. They were, you know, I, I, I energized them to go and get their health check. All of it. Not just the okie doke get everything done. And even the uh, colonoscopy, I said, you got to get that done too. Uh, if you're close, get it done. Get it all checked out and get it all in front of you so you can make a real decision or get help with the real decision. And then as far as people that have, there's another guy that actually had, we almost had it, as I discovered, almost had our surgeries at the same time. So we're comparing notes and we still eyeing each other, instant messages back and forth. Where are you today? How are you feeling this weekend? What did you do about this? And are you still having this? And that really helped a lot just to have that support system there or have somebody going to something at the same time as you because his timing was off on certain things. He was, like I said, he, I didn't say, but this is the guy that he was in surgery like one, he was on the hospital one day. And I said, I was in there for three days. He goes, what, what the heck happened to you? So <laughs> I said, were tumors they found more than what was there and i said it was a difficult surgery so my recovery time is going to be different than yours so we started chatting back and forth just little things here and there some of the techniques that his therapist told him were different than what i was told so uh we we're talking not 
not not just about that, but you know, the whole incontinence thing is like the, on first base. I mean, you you don't want to feel like a baby anymore. That, that that kind of like stuck in my mind. But he was saying, you know, once you start wearing them, you get really, I got to say, so concerned about having incontinence that you want to wear the largest pad that you can have so that you don't make a mistake <laughs> and you don't look like, you know, hey, look, look what happened to him. So I was still doing that along after. He says, you know, hey, have you tried to say, have you at night, he says, you know, I don't really use my pads. You know, I use, le- it's been less. He said, but you know, he said, my therapist told me at night, you have less chance of having an incontinence episode. I'm like, I didn't know that. So he told me that. So I started trying things at night. I'm thinking, wait a minute, I'm not as bad off as I thought I was. Because you just don't want to have an accident. Trust me, you just don't want to have an accident. Yeah. And that's that weighs heavy on your mind to have an accident. So he told me that. So I started saying, okay, let's see what happens at night. So I started getting more comfortable about night. And then I once I figured out I could sleep, go nights without using any sort of pad, because it's sort of like a, a, you know, a stage thing. Then I thought in the daytime, do I need this big giant pad anymore? So I cut down to the the thinnest one. I just graduated to now the thinnest one I could ever possibly find. But there's no tracking. There's no real way to track it or to understand where you are is what I found out. And it would be nice if you said, okay, so now this big pad is soaked by this amount of fluid. And then so you can track it. So you know how to change. There is no methodology for that that I saw. I'm always looking for ways to get more efficient. So (laughs) I'm thinking, now that's something that so that you can graduate to each one of these different levels of pads. I still think they don't have it. I think they need that. I think that's a thing that you could create. and, And anybody that has that surgery would know exactly what I'm talking about. So when do I go to that thinnest pad and to, when do I throw it away? So if they have these pads that kind of gave you an indication on how much fluid is in it sort of thing, you would then be able to monitor more carefully and understand where you are, that you are making progress, which is the big deal. Most of the time I was thinking I wasn't making progress until I talked to him. No, I, I guess I am getting better. So now still, you know, it's down to dribbles here and there. At first, I could tell you in the beginning, I would cough and just, you know, you sneeze, you you, yes. you, you do almost anything. And you, you know, Cough, sneeze. Anything. Yes. Blow your nose. Yes. Don't laugh. And I love to laugh. Right. You know, can't, can't be laughing. Like, okay. I need a big pad for my laugh because I'm going to laugh a lot. Right. So, but you, you start to back off from there. But I think you kind of need to know that to understand your progress. And if you understood where you were, then you wouldn't be so reluctant to better not laugh or better not, you know, you start to, you start to relax a little bit more. Um, it's still going to be on your mind, but you know, you, you start to relax and feel that you are recovering. And that was a big deal for me. So anybody out there that has it, that tracking is a big deal. I thought of inventing something. So how do I invent that? That's a, that hasn't been done yet. Anyway, so that could be a business idea for you. I think of lots of things. So, <laughs> but that's part of uh, communicating with other people. You find out they're going through the same thing and they don't know where they are either. Erectile dysfunction, uh, moving on to something else, is a little bit harder to kind of figure that out because i've tried different things now and if you want me to go through my will but that is another once you get that one out of the way or sort of get it contained then you're dealing with the other thing simultaneously it's kind of hard it's it's really kind of devastating on your mind to do it all so you know i kind of focused on one because that's that for me i i, I want to 
solve one thing before I go to the next. That's how I am, a serial approach to everything. So I said, okay, so let me at least get one that I'm, I'm feeling comfortable about before I fully engage with it. But I was fully engaged, both of them at the same time, which can be somewhat confusing. Not confusing, but just where am I? And they're both not doing well, so you don't feel good about yourself. You don't feel the progress. Either way, you don't feel good. Right. I think that's interesting that you bring that up. I haven't heard that necessarily before because, you know, with radiation, it's a little bit, it's a little different. I mean, not significantly different. Some people can have incontinence, but a lot of times they don't, but they do experience erectile dysfunction. But it's interesting to hear that you say it would be good to kind of have a better understanding in terms of where you are in that recovery period to know, am I on track? Is what I'm experiencing right now, should I be experiencing that six months after the surgery or eight months after the surgery? Am I moving in the right direction? And I think that you bring up a really good point because I can imagine, I can't say I've been through it. So that's why I keep saying I can imagine. It's very difficult. And I have those conversations for sure with my patients regarding erectile dysfunction. And it is. It can be a difficult conversation for the obvious reasons, and I think maybe that that's true when it comes to our health quite a bit. There's very personal, private things that now you are discussing with somebody, even discussing it with the healthcare provider is tough, and then you bring in maybe somebody like me, and, and there are some men who don't necessarily, I think they get over it, but they are a little shy or hesitant to talk to me about it because I'm a woman. Right. I totally agree. And add to this, most of the people that you're talking to haven't gone through the surgery and they have no idea. I mean, they have a script. They kind of know to what people say, but they don't actually know. That's a big deal. Yeah. I mean, like you said, even talking to a male caretaker, really, really tough then. But I imagine it's it's even tougher with a female. But you the point is, if you start talking about it, you start to get over it. But that's a big de- that's a big hump to get over. It's not a little bump in the road. It's a big. It's no, I won't I won't call it a mountain, but it's definitely a hill. <laughs> right, right. And I try to tell my patients, you know, we're all human beings. Human beings urinate. <laughs> we have bowel movements. We have sex. This is all things that, for me. As a healthcare provider, I've talked about so many times it, it, you know, I talk about, well, what color is your bowel movements or what color is the urine? And then when it comes to erections and it's something that you talk about, you talk about the ejaculate fluid and things like that. And I'm so comfortable with it f- in terms of for me, but I, I know that it's not necessarily the easiest thing to talk about. But I think if we get more comfortable with it, then you can, obviously you can ask better questions and maybe you're getting a little bit better information and just remember that you know your urologist your primary care physician your radiation oncologist whoever it may be we have seen it and dealt with it and smelled it and you know it's it's just <laughs> it's it's not anything to be shy or embarrassed about but that is difficult for i think individuals to come to grips with i kind of brought it down to two things what you were just talking about. I mean, it, this is me assessing all these things that are happening. One, culturally speaking, in America, we do not talk about sex generally anyway. We talk about it in a very hidden and 
we have all of these different words that mean something in a different way. So you can hint at it and you can laugh about it. We have all that going on. So we're really not approaching anything directly. And the second thing is still in the same culture. We're not used to asking, uh, I'll do it, but we're not used to putting the doctor and asking all the questions we need to ask because we take it as we have to sit down like a teacher student and just listen to the information and not talk about everything in a holistic way. So those two things, people aren't used to talking to doctors and telling them everything anyway, because you'll talk to a patient. I'm not saying for you, but I talked to my friends. I didn't tell them this. You got to tell them. No, you got to tell them everything so that they know how to function and, and get you cured. But we're not used to asking. And then once you find out what it is, you've got to be interested enough to know, well, what should I be doing? How is this effect? You have to come in with your own set of questions almost and understand, let them explain to you so you fully understand what some of your diagnoses are. So I think we have those things already working against them before they even enter your office. They expect you to know everything and tell them everything, but that's not how it works. They got the more input you give, the better you can tell them what's going on. So now you got these two things that are hidden basically throughout the American culture that it's a different sort of relationship with the doctor-patient. And now you have these things that we don't talk about sex enough. It's tough. It becomes very, very tough to have these conversations because you don't even have these conversations with your friends. <laughs> Forget about it. Exactly. And now you got to talk to a stranger about it? Come on. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's all those factors that really have nothing to do with your knowledge because you're capable only if they tell you enough so you can apply that to it, right? So there's a whole different sort of messing. That's what I'm saying. That's why I felt I need to start communicating more because I said, you got to talk to your doctor and tell them everything and ask them questions about that treatment. You know, let them give you information so you're armed with the right amount of stuff so you can understand it. So if somebody asks you what that is, you should be able to tell them. Go, nah, doctor said that? I don't know. <laughs> you did that when you asked me about PSA. I don't know. <laughs> and I felt, I'm right. a bonehead. Let me go and read this stuff so I can understand what this means. So I reread all the Gleason stuff. I reread all the PSA stuff. Said, okay, now I'm ready. <laughs> right, so. Well, you, that's, that's fantastic. I think that's such good advice. And I obviously, the other individual that you know who also went through surgery seems like they have helped you quite a bit. And we know that there's certain uh, cancer centers and including mine where previous patients are willing to talk to those that are just, you know, recently been diagnosed and it's helpful. It's definitely helpful because as you know, I can only relate to a certain extent, but if you're hearing it from somebody else who's been through the radiation or they've been through the surgery and they can say, Hey, this is what I'm doing right now, or this is what helped me. That's really, really beneficial. And it sounds like it, that's true for for you and this other individual. I researched underwear. <laughs> I researched, I can't tell you. I re- <laughs> the guy said, wait a minute, what kind is that? So, I'm, so I have a whole list of all these things now. <laughs> you have probably researched things that you never thought you would be researching. Never thought I would. But I've, I've been able to give this knowledge to other people because, you know, he was floating. He said, so what did you do? So I, I told, you know, I told him these these special pads I ordered. I tell them all this stuff that they probably didn't think about, but I, you know, I get involved with things. And, and so I, so that's why I said communication is pretty important. And that's why, you know, I've kind of influenced a lot of people. First, they're telling me, and then wait a minute, let me go and do, let me, I'm not working hard enough. I'm not looking, I'm not trying to help myself enough. And that's when I start, you know, communicating more. I think that's fantastic. 
I think that's great. Well, I know we're coming up on the end. We've we've been t- chatting for quite a bit. This has been fantastic. This has been great and so helpful. Again, I think talking to individuals such as yourself, it makes a difference. I can, like I just said, I can only talk about prostate cancer to a certain extent. And then after that, I don't have a prostate. I've never been through surgery. I've never been through radiation. I can't talk about it the way that you have just talked about it. So I I know that this will be so helpful for our listeners. Any last comments that you want to communicate to those that are listening? I think you bring a good point. I think that, like I said, the next time around, they should probably talk to someone of your stature in the oncology field, because I think that's really important to, to really round out the picture even more so. Because all these are, are before you get surgery, there all these different consultations. I think that I had made up my mind. I don't think I should have made up my mind so quickly, but I, I'm not regretting that I did it. I just should even have a fuller understanding. But I think what you're doing now is great. If anytime you need somebody who want me to talk to somebody, I, I'm fully open to doing it. I hope people communicate more, more than anything else. It's the communication factor that will get you ahead and do it from the start. If you're communicating, you learn how to do that, then it becomes easy to always do it. But it's getting over that initial hump. Yeah, you're correct. Arming yourself with the the most amount of information is actually best so that you can make an informed decision because there's a lot that goes into something like this. Well, JW, this has been I'll say it's actually been fun. <laughs> Maybe not for you, but <laughs> I was laughing. We were having fun as usual. We so. were. We were. And I think having a sense of humor, do you think that having a sense of humor and being able to to joke about it and laugh about it is okay? You gotta be but you know, I always laugh at myself. Of course I laugh at you too. But anyway, mm-hmm. I, I, that is curative in and of itself. Because it actually shows a level of comfortability if you can laugh about it because you can, you've gone through so serious. Now you see it's just so humorous. It's, you know, watching an animated cartoon. You know, it's, it's all these sorts of things that you, you start to get over all those things. The more you talk about it and you talk to somebody and they make fun of it, not making fun of you, but the situation itself, then it takes it to a different level. So yeah, humor is a quite strong of, a, of a, an emotion to have to really get over a lot of things to feel healthy. Right. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show and I'm glad that you're doing well and I'm always here for you, as you know. I do know that. Thank you. Anytime you want to chit chat and talk to me, I'm always here. I'm always here for you. So I'm so happy that you are doing well at this point. And I thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate you inviting me. I hope I did some have some value in there somewhere. <laughs> you absolutely did for sure. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed today's interview with JW. And if you would like more information regarding prostate cancer, please go to my website at centerpointoncology.com or you can go to cancer.gov. And so as I leave you at the end of every episode, until next time, be well. Thank you for listening to the Cancer from A to Z podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would love it if you subscribed and left a review. And if you know anyone who could benefit from this information, please share the podcast with them. Until next time, I am your host, Dr. Rosalind Morell.